Hi, this is Glenn Kaiser with the Dolby Institute, and we're here today to talk about 1917 with uh, supervising dialogue editor and, and ADR editor Rachel Tate. So welcome to the show, Rachel. Thanks for sitting down and talking to us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So um, obviously we're talking via Skype because, you know, people are busy and I'm in Park City, Utah at the Sundance Film Festival. Oh, that's way cooler than me. I'm in Twickenham Studios in near London. <laughs> but, but you're working, which is great. Yes, yes. Well, I guess I'm working too, but that's another story. But first of all, congratulations. This is your first Academy Award nomination. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, very first one. And um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, um, uh, I'm, I'm the only woman, which is, which is crazy uh, in this day and age, but, um, but uh, very feel very honored to be well I'm, I'm i'm glad you brought that up because it was certainly you know when i saw the when i saw the list of nominees i was a little i was a little disappointed at the at the lack of diversity in the nominations and it's certainly i mean it's certainly something that um you know that we talk quite a bit about it at dolby which is specifically post-production sound tends to be a pretty white male field um, mm -hmm. And we have lots of conversations about how to address that. And there's certainly, there's certainly, uh, you know, some fantastic uh, uh, women on the re-recording side and also in the, uh, in the sound editorial community, but we need more. And so I'm kind of curious just to, before we even dive into 1917, can, I would love to hear a little bit about, about your superhero origin story and, and, and how, you, how you became a sound editor and how you found your way into this field. Uh, uh, I didn't know anything about this field. They didn't teach it in my uh, generic media degree that I did. So I had no um, specific desire to, to cut dialogues from a young age. It was just that uh, I knew I wanted to do feature film work, uh, probably direct, because that seems like sure. the, the best job for bossing everyone around. <laughs> and um, so I went into camera for a while, uh, thinking that would get me towards that. And uh, it just wasn't as creative as I imagined it to be. I guess when you get right up there it is, but I was really dying to be more hands-on, more creative. So I got a, a job as a runner at Delane Lee um, in London, right. uh, or it was Warner Brothers, a long time before. And uh, I was just seeing how it all works. And, and the, I was there for a good year and the, they let me sit in and watch mixes. And, uh, I became the ADR recordist with Peter Gleaves, the late Peter Gleaves. And, um, it's, it's so creative. You wouldn't believe I'm glad that not everyone knows about this so that, that we're not inundated. <laughs> <laughs> so it's such a great job. And, um, you're just painting a picture and you get to be shut away in a room or, or out in the studio, but you get to be um, picking away at a film and, and, and um, releasing all the clean dialogue from production and the director thought, oh, they have to re-record it all and, oh, it's great. And then we add in a load of crowd and we make it all uh, the correct reverb and the room and, and, and it's, it's so nice to just them go, oh, that's a film now. Yeah. That, what we were aiming for we they come to the final mix and that's as close they, as they have been in all that time to what they're going to see in the cinema and it, it, it if it, we do it right which we hopefully do it lifts them up and and uh, it's a real bonding experience on a good mix without we, without a doubt yeah yeah well i i want to i want to just kind of uh, dive into that a, a little bit more um so the audience uh rachel for our podcast uh, we get a lot of, of international professionals, but we also have a lot of film students and we have a lot of, you know, just film fans who are interested in the process. But I think for most people who aren't in the post-production sound business, they probably think um, when they hear a di when they hear dialogue in a film, it's probably just, well, that's just the production track that was recorded on set. And and then they layer in some sound effects and throw in some music and, and, and away they go. So maybe you could just give us a little like, you know, very short description of your job as a dialogue and ADR editor and what you do and, 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 and what you bring to the film. So, uh, on set pretty much ordinarily you've got, I'm going to simplify it down and Stuart me for this, but, um, this is, you've got a mic, the boom mic is pointed at the actor's mouth and it is very directional. So it's, it's, it's going to concentrate on just getting those words. So that all the people behind, for instance, they're, not talking or if they are it's not picked up they're not picked up so that all has to be um 
added afterwards with actors and voice actors and uh, in our case soldiers uh, to give it the um, feeling that it's more than just the center speaker to give it a cinematic feeling on top of that when you're filming you get um, planes going over you get crew shouting or walking around uh, again as in this film a lot of crew in mud um, you can't give the game away they can't peek behind the curtain at all so you have to have just the dialogue as clean as you can get it and that is very intricate uh, housekeeping from my side it's um, done spectrally or I do it spectrally and uh, visually I mean cleaning out the clicks and bumps and everything that shouldn't be there yeah then and, and let's not let's not forget with a with a period piece like 1917 the actors are usually they have maybe radio mics hidden in their in their yes. uh, costumes, but sometimes with a period piece, these costumes can get very noisy. So there's also a lot of very finely detailed surgery that you have to do on the track to kind of clean all that up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, I don't know if Stuart went into it, but uh, we had clip my inside the roof of uh, the lip of the helmet just here, which was a genius. So like a little mini boom. It was uh, until they took their helmets off. That was a really good one. To do. Uh, but it still picked up feet because it was pointing. It, it, well, it's omni, but it, it picked up the feet as well, and so that also needed cleaning up. But we didn't; we got rid of all the rustle and everything from the costumes, and uh, that's all Stuart. He was tirelessly looking for new, intricate ways to record. They were always, a lot of the time, wearing three clip mics: one on the webbing just to give it movement, one here and one here. And um, it, it, yeah, it stuns me how much work he went 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 into doing that so uh, so that means that you had a lot of material coming in a lot of alts yeah. to choose from they all get recorded together and uh i get given basically reams of tracks so all the booms uh there might have been two booms each guy has three mics so there's three four five six seven eight then there's a mixed track at the top that stuart prepared so the director on set could hear it and then below that, you've got any other characters. So it can be like 14, 18 tracks. And then you have to go through everything. Because if there's a breath, if there's a little uh, nuanced piece, you can't uh, miss anything. And so you pick the best mic. Or you might blend a few mics together because someone's going in and out of uh, range. It, it's, yeah, yeah, that's a big part of it. It's not just a, it's not just a mono. There is a lot of different sounds to consider. Well, so that's your job on a normal movie. So, yeah. But let's talk about 1917, because obviously the major, I think the major uh, thing from a technical standpoint was uh, the whole concept of this is, this plays out as one continuous take. And so we heard from, we heard from Stuart about the challenges that he faced in terms of not being able to get microphones in and having to, you know, he had to be quite a ways off the set in order for, him and his crew not to appear uh, in the shot if the camera swung around and whatnot. But um, so, uh, you know, when I first heard about the one continuous take thing, my first thought was like, okay, well, there's going to be a ton of ADR and dialogue replacement and post-production on this film because there's no way they can get good dialogue tracks in a situation like that. But it turns out that's not the case. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, we uh, we had the cameras with them the whole time as they're walking through like you said, it's not like you can cut away to a, to a wide shot and get some nice clean takes. They are with them all the time for a long period of time. And with that cameraman, there's the guy behind him. There's, there's another guy behind him. You can see in the making of, there's sometimes four, five, six guys running along in big boots behind them in the mud. And it's yeah, a cacophony of sound. So that was something that we had to strip out, but do it very evenly. And you're, you're going between shots that might look like they are the same shot, but they might be days apart in the other end of the country. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, continuity was, was the big issue here, making it all sound the same all the way through. And I've got to say again, Stuart, putting down um, all these special cables and stuff so he could get, most people would just, well, sorry, you're not going to get a boom on that. It's going to cut in and out on that range. Sorry, you're just going to have to ADR it. He wouldn't take no for an answer. And I think we ended up with uh, two lines for tech in the end. Uh, the rest were... Two lines? That's it? Mm -hmm. Wow. And not even breaths. Uh, all those breaths are what they did on the set. That's how. That's that's just how um, 
how uh, good it was a combo of Stuart putting all the effort in at the beginning and then us having the time because it's not cutting all the time. Once they set it, it was locked. We had the time to get intricate, really get into it. So we're not chasing a cut. We're just working on, can we make this better? Can we use this? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, it worked out really well. So. Yeah. Stuart, uh, uh, Stuart tells a story uh, in the second part of this episode uh, uh, where he got some pushback from the crew. They're like, well, there's no dialogue in the scene. Why do you need to have clean? You know? uh, yeah. It's about the breaths. Yes, it is. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of performance in the breaths. If you take them out or even if you replace them and they come into a studio six months later, not in costume, not in that situation, the best guys in the world are not going to be able to fully match what they did at the time, jumping on over the canal um, uh, walking upstairs with a gun like you just can't you can't stand in a studio and do that and it's not it doesn't it just doesn't sound the same not to me I'd rather have what they did on the day because that's what the director signed off on so that's what he wants it's the performance that Sam Mendes wanted right yeah 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 I think ADR is great uh, as an opportunity to improve a performance sometimes or um, to change a line fine but uh, no my my uh, reason for being here chiefly is to keep as much of the production as I can. So I'm like a housekeeper for them, <laughs> but, but cooler, <laughs> way, way cooler, way cooler. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, so there was almost no principal ADR, but was there, was there loop group or what, what did you, there was only ADR in the sense of adding new things, changing lines, changing, um, the actual content of what they were saying. So, there, for instance, the, um, when, when Schofield is drowning, he's going along in the rapids, uh, I could actually use all those breaths. It was amazing. They were all completely fine. He, they managed to boom the hell out of it. And we did it again because, just because Sam wanted more, more drama in it, more um, at the scale of the effects. Uh, on those on that water is like and you just couldn't hear what he was doing sure. because obviously he was in quite a quiet canal at the time when he did that so uh things like that that's that's not i don't classify that as tech because that was completely usable yeah 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 absolutely and was there so was there a group on on this i'm trying yeah. to think yeah yeah there was yeah uh so we had 20 guys come in we did everything as much as we could we shot outside we prefer to shoot crayon outside uh if it's an external film mm-hmm used the same mics that Stuart used and we shot on in a field on a five hour array. Uh, so they were inside it so that we could actually have it, uh, around the cinema as if you were in there with the men, you know, and, uh, we decided instead of using the 20 voice actors, you would usually get in. We got 10 guys from the British territorial army who are currently, you know, active and they're young guys, 18 to 23, 24, as young as we could get them to match how young they would have been. Sure. And uh, a couple of them were even medics. So we uh, had them for the triage scene at the end. They do some of the doctor stuff and uh, we had another guy lying down in pain and they would act out everything. And we uh, we got a, a stretcher. They happened to have a World War One stretcher at uh, Shepparton where we shot this. And they would carry their friends like frantically across the field and then someone else would pick it up and run back with them. And, and it just like, it, you know, uh, when you hear it, you just know it's not a guy standing in front of Mike going, uh, uh, you know, it's not sure. a guy stationary. It's real. And, and the natural reflections off the buildings, it was just, um, it helped to sell it because I know Sam's uh, in the past, maybe not been a huge fan of crowdy crowd. So I was trying to, um, bed it right in there with Stuart's stuff because uh, he got some great stuff for the triage scene as well. And then I EQ matched it so that it would really match what he got on the day. And I'm pretty sure Sam doesn't quite know which bits are from the set and which bits are from mine. I hope so. That's, that's, that's the idea anyway. It went in is what I'm saying. It went in and he didn't mute anything. So I'm pleased. And it added width, you know, it added this, the cinematic scale because we could have just gone with that mono sure. from the scene. It would have felt very tight and weird. So it was nice to be able to open it up. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up because um, 
you know, obviously the sense of epic scale is really important to this film and visually it's huge and expansive. And so, you know, you, the, the challenge was uh, for you and the sound effects editorial team to, you know, to match that scale of vision uh, on the sound side as well. Yeah, but not, it was weird because there's no cuts in the film. Uh, we had to play around with the scale a little bit in so much as there's big set pieces where it has to be big, filmic, huge scale. But then in between those, where you'd usually cut away to a quiet scene or cut away uh, somewhere else, something else is happening, you don't, you can't cut away. So we wanted to give people a rest in between, give their ears a rest, but sure. also tension-wise, give them a rest. So you bring everything down a bit, and that includes Foley, that includes the sharpness of the breaths even, if you hear um, after the mine collapse, that is one of the loudest bits in the film. And then after that, they're walking uh, across uh, enemy territory where everyone's deserted it and the shells are on the ground everywhere. You listen to the foley there, it dips right down and it's just their breaths and it's just them looking around at the emptiness. And it's actually, even the backgrounds come down a little and we did that on purpose so that you could just reset because we found after the mine, we were pushing the mix because your your ears are just fried, you know. So we needed to just give it a breather. And then the next thing that happens is basically we go through the orchard and the plane crashes through. So on the way back into that, everything starts coming up bigger as they approach the farmhouse, tensions mounting again, everything gets sharper, everything gets crispier. And that's how we played with the ebbs and flows of the tension in the film because you couldn't rely on the edit to to add pace really it was the pace of them well yeah I, I i was thinking about that as i was thinking about just the challenge uh, of editing the picture which is normally you know uh if if a scene is playing long or you feel like it's dipping a little bit you know you can just tighten the edit well you can't do that on this so really it it comes down to the sound and the music teams to kind of to kind of keep keep that engagement going yeah exactly yeah and uh yeah, Tom Newman did a, a fantastic job, and and we were so pleased when we knew he was he was going to be uh, helping us out with that. It was it was a brilliant score, and um, yeah, we, uh, exactly that. We had to um, we couldn't just be linear with it. We we uh, in fact, when we work on a normal film where it's all cut, we tend to do things like hit the cut at the beginning. So if you cut to a party scene, you're invariably going to hear a woman laughing. Just over there. If you cut to um, an exterior shot in London, you'll hear a. There's things that you hit so that the person watching goes, ah, London, got it. Ah, a party, great. So, and we couldn't really do that. So it had to just creep in, creep out. And we just, um, actually, our principal thing with the way we mixed it is to think about what would they hear? These mm. are the two. Is on the on the adventure together. Don't play it like uh, a Bourne film or something where you hear everything in the on the screen because you're not the viewer. You're a participant. You're with them. It's almost like a VR experience. You're 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 walking with them. So you need to hear what they would hear, and that includes uh, when they're emotionally distracted and things dip away. Like when he's in the back of that truck after. Um, I, I don't want to give it away, but after something bad happens and he's traumatized, everything dips right down. Music takes over. He's not really paying attention to what the guys are saying. And then it all comes back as he snaps back into reality, things like that. Yeah. And yeah. walking through the trenches, not every guy has got audible things coming out of their mouth because it's distracting. They sure. wanted, Sam even said he wanted a vignette on, like in an old photo, you know, the, mm -hmm. the edges are browned off. He wanted to be right in with them so you're not going oh there's a guy who just said that oh that guy just whipped pan to the back they don't want stuff like that if you but can't you, but you did that with sound to kind of shape and focus the attention yeah, exactly exactly because you're relying much more on sound to do things that perhaps the edit would do with uh, cutaways and extreme close-ups and things you you yeah it was nice. It was nice to be relied on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I imagine that uh, that people would, uh, in thinking about this work, kind of uh, go to the big, you know, the big climactic battle sequence at the end, or the mine explosion uh, uh, sequence as particular challenges. But uh, for for you, uh, 
I would love to hear about, uh, you know, maybe a specific scene that turned out to be just a really difficult challenge for you and, and what contributed to that and how you addressed it. Yeah. Uh, well, from a dialogue point of view, the, the, one of the tricky scenes was actually when they're walking down towards the orchard. So they come out of a copse at the top of a hill and they walk down to an orchard. And this isn't a big scene for anyone normally, but they couldn't get the – there's a part where the camera moves away the other side of a bunch of trees, and so the boom op moves away. Mm-hmm. So they're off the boom, and it's fully on this uh, – on their uh, oh, helmet mics, but it was a hell of a windy day. So it was <laughs> – you can see the trees in the back are doing that. We've laid up a nice calm thing, per Sam, but it was like, um, you know, it's England. It was, it was terrible weather. And so uh, we had to take the wind out of that mic, and what you're left with was a very close sounding. So once you take the warmth out, it didn't. It didn't sound right for the picture, and the boom was just off too far away for too long. So uh, that was a real challenge, and I did not want to ADR it, and we didn't. Uh, in the end, uh, I just I took as much out of the boom as I could. I, I pushed it as hard as I could then denoised it further and tried to um, blend it with the, with the radios just enough to give it a feeling of uh, a nice rounded sound as you would expect to hear from that distance. The minute we got back up close to them, it was fine. The boom was back on and it didn't matter that they sounded close because they were close. But it was just for that section and with the wind and everything and the feet crunching on the grass, it was, yeah, there was a lot of... Uh, a technical aspect to making that work. And hopefully people can't tell how much work has gone into the dialogues there. It's just hopefully it sails by, but yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's one of those sequences. I remember it as you describe it, but it never would have occurred to me that that was particularly challenging for you. That was one of the early ones. Uh, they, they sent through like urgent help. <laughs> there can, weren't many. Can you fix this? Right. So tell me, were you on the mixing stage during the mix? Mm-hmm. So tell yeah. me a little bit about that process. Um, how involved was Sam? Was he at the mix every day? Kind of like is because we've all worked with directors who just come in every third or fourth day and get, hear a playback and give notes, and we've all worked with directors who are there every minute of the day. Where does Sam kind of fit on that continuum? He's, he's, every, he's an every minute guy. Yeah, he was he was there, and it was great. He you know what's what's uh, worse then all of those is the guy that's there every minute of the day and has no idea what they want to do and just says, make it different. He wasn't, he wasn't like that. He was there every minute of the day. In fact, probably earlier than most of us, he was prompt and he knew exactly what he wanted. He would say trumpet a little bit higher or, um, uh, those feet too toppy, make them a little, you know, he knew. And so because we weren't given just random, make it different notes, we were, flying through it and it it was um it was lovely to have someone there who is a proper auteur he he's and i would imagine he was like this with every department in the film and i don't know how his brain fits all this in really it's 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 incredible but um we have one direction his direction and we all followed it and it made for a, a very seamless mix and he also wanted to he, he wanted to know more about the different formats uh, you know, 5171, what's different about Atmos? A, B, it, please. Play me 71, play me 51. Now play me that plane in the uh, 71. Okay, now what's different about the surrounds? And we explained that, um, you know, you get more fidelity in the surrounds and this and that. And he. Um, you had to explain to him audio objects and Atmos and, and whatnot. Exactly, yeah. And, and then he even popped in for the TV mix, he popped in at the IMAX mix. He, it, it meant so much to him, this film, that he was in every step of the way he was there. And he was still nipping off as, as little as he could, nipping off to VFX meetings, coming back again. You know, and, and we didn't do any, um, did we do any lates or weekends? No, we didn't. We, we stuck to schedule. And, um, and Lee Smith, the editor, he was there mm-hmm. as well pretty much all the time. They had a room just upstairs where... If they wanted to change something, they could go and nip up and do it. And um, Lee Smith, who I should point out, was a former sound guy. So he's not going to let you guys get away with anything. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can pull the wool over his eyes. <laughs> he um, he was great. Uh, he, um, again, knew what he wanted. And he was very keen to get our tracks bounce into his avid 
early, really early. In fact, what they would do uh, on occasion was shoot, uh, pick the take on day one, say, then they'd give it to us day two. By the end of day two, day three, we'd have it as cleaned and as as full of sound as we could give them back to the avid. And so then he'd play it back to Sam. Here's here's the thing you shot the other day with as as complete a sound as we could give him within two days so that Sam knew, okay, my film's on the right course. I see that that's going to stitch with the previous chunk. You know, it it couldn't, he wanted to hear it in all its best sound from the beginning. So we pretty much turned it around back to the avid as quick as we could. And it went like that, shoot to us fix back to them shoot to us fix back to them. so there wasn't like suddenly we get three reels it was every little couple of days we'd get the next little chunk like that and and uh that was a nice way of working it was it was a bit like a factory but a, a cool factory <laughs> so that's extraordinary so you were actually on and working during the shoot that's uh, that's un- that's unprecedented in fact they mi- they um locked the cut uh, a-, a couple of weeks after they finished shooting so, so it was it was very fast turnaround, and I don't even know. I think the film was supposed to be out later, but it was just done quickly, so it came out at Christmas. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, a weird way of working, but I really enjoyed it. I liked the pressure. It was, yeah. um, and I liked being able to just go hey, here, Sam. This is what you shot, and there's like airplanes, there's, there's the Atmos, there's everything. Sorry, Bee Gees. There's everything's done as as much as we could do and uh, we love working fast as well we like trying to surprise them with how quick everything can be done (laughs) but um the downside of that is i'm not sure if sam knows what we did what Stuart did and what lee did i don't know if we've got the full amount of uh, of of kudos (laughs) but we anyway we're a team so it's fine (laughs) well that's great that's great So, um, just for, for those who might be interested technically, um, so obviously you're, 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 you've got your finely tuned scalpel in your, in, in, in editing, I presume you're working in pro tools, but is there any special, uh, what kind of software are you using to try to clean this, uh, clean up the production tracks? Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of RX seven advanced. I love it. Isotope. Um, it's got so many, uh, in fact, they're even coming out with a thing called Dialogue Match. It's out now, and uh, I was beta testing that for them, and that's uh, really good. You can pick a clip, and it'll try and match the sound quality to the boom so that you can mm. actually improve the sound quality. It, it doesn't always work, but it, it's, uh, it leaps and bounds from what you could do before. And RX-7, I've got uh, things that take out clicks, harms, um, you can draw out things, you can copy and paste over uh, parts that you don't want to hear. Um, you can uh, dialogue isolate, pulls the dialogue out, pushes the uh, noise back. If you know how to use it, that is, you can't just apply it to the whole sound. You have to pick the bits that you really want to get rid of, otherwise it ruins the track. Uh, but that's something I'm on all day long. And I also like Auto Align Post, which is a new one relatively new that uh, helps because the boom is always going to be slightly out of sync, slightly delayed with the clip. And the clip is the master sync for me most of the time. So it helps. Uh, it just lines that back up and uh, it would take you ages to, to go zoom right in and, and do all this and line it up. That's, that was a, used to be a very time, time uh, consuming part of my job, but this, this thing really speeds stuff up. So those two things are my main software. I love them. And then you've got Altiverb and uh, I've got a Lex plugin here. I've got ProQ2, Massey DSer, uh, uh, and the normal channel strip. Oh, and uh, uh, got a denoiser here, which is Cedar. I really mm-hmm. like Cedar as well. Again, it's knowing how to use it. If you just apply it, it can ruin can ruin a track. So um, yeah, yeah, you're right. These are very powerful tools, and if you if you if you use them unwisely, then you can overprocess the dialogue and kind of ruin the spirit of things. Yeah, and, and ruin your friendship with the director as well. Yeah. <laughs> and then you won't get invited back to the next one. No, no. That's so uh, obviously, you and Oliver Tarney um, uh, share the nomination uh, for sound, best sound editing for 1917, but you guys didn't do it all by yourselves. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to give you an opportunity to give a shout out to anybody on your team. 
well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, they're just down the corridor working right now, but um, uh, we pretty much have stuck with the same guys uh, for years and years because they're just the best at their job and they uh, work tirelessly. So we've got James Harrison on effects. We've got Mike Fenton, uh, who was a sound designer. Uh, we've got Hugo Adams. He was the Foley editor. Uh, and the Foley, by the way, I just I think it's one of the best jobs for Foley. We've well, tooting our own horn here, but I just thought the Foley was incredible. Very natural sounding. You wouldn't know how much of that is added. A lot, a lot is added. No one knows so much, and it, it just fits right in. It's great. And then I've got an assistant called Aaron, who's just there in that room and uh he used to be in-house here at Twickenham and we poached him and uh, he's an amazing guy very very creative very tech savvy so yeah that's our team fantastic well uh you know obviously it's your first nomination but this is not your your first time at the rodeo uh, uh, by any stretch of the imagination you've previously worked on I'm looking at your credits, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, Jason Bourne, The Martian. So you're you're used to working on these big, complicated, difficult yeah. films. Yeah, not not necessarily like 1917. That was a, a little complicated, difficult one of its own. That's um, very unique. But uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, used to the ones, yeah. Without a doubt, 1917 uh, posed its own unique challenges. I, I really thank you for taking the time. I know you're busy at work to, to kind of talk to us and walk us through the process on this. It's really an, an extraordinary achievement. Oh, thank you. Oh, I just wanted to add one thing. Um, so when we were shooting Crowd, I kept all my books here. This, we couldn't just shoot Crowd. We had to know it was the correct crowd. So I did a lot of reading and these are all my books because otherwise there's no point in me keeping them. So I'm going to make use of them now. And these are all like slang from the second, uh, for First World War, uh, the ma officer's manual that they used to use so they could grab the right piece of kit. Uh, this is called the Wipers Times, which was a newspaper that they used to read in that area, which was printed by soldiers. And it's very funny. It's like Viz, but oh, you don't get Viz. It's like a comedy magazine. Um, trench talk, how they used to talk in the trenches, pretty self-explanatory. Lingo of no man's land, the lingo. And there's so many. I could go on and on. But I went to all the museums in, in uh, I went to the Passchendaele Museum, which I highly recommend. And uh, just uh, I wasn't going to have them talk about iPhones or something. It had to be the right thing. So listen closely, but they're saying the right things. <laughs> That's extraordinary. How much fun. That must have been a lot of fun for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I fully enjoyed it. It was great. Great. Well, that's a great way to end our conversation. Thanks so much, Rachel. Thank you for having me. So everyone, I hope you stick around uh, for the second part of uh, our conversation about 1917. My, my, my partner in crime, Michael Coleman with the Soundworks Collection, uh, talked with uh, Stuart Wilson, who was the production sound mixer. So that part is coming up next. And, and just a, a, little, a little caveat, um, they definitely had uh, a little bit of bandwidth issues. And so the, uh, the recording gets a little a little furry at a couple points, but I hope you stick with it. There's some great stuff there. Rachel, thanks again. It was a really pleasure. It was a great pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Bye-bye. It's my pleasure to chat and uh, have a conversation with um, sound production mixer, Stuart Wilson, who you are now in, where, where are you calling in from? I'm calling from London, England. <clears throat> Fantastic. Yeah. I'm just, uh, yeah, where, I, where I'm, I'm, I'm based here. This is where I live. Fantastic. Where were you when you found out? Um, I was at uh, <clears throat> Warner Brothers Leavesden Studios. Um, uh, was preparing a, a, a new movie, and I got uh, I received a text message from our dialogue editor, uh, Rachel Tate, because we've been. It's been a great, very. I mean, this movie uh, overall has been probably the most collaborative um, film I've been involved with. So um, the. Uh, that was that came down to the the dialogue editor tipping me off that we'd been nominated. So I'd love to start off. Uh, uh, I was going to say, look, um, looking back to kind of you're talking about the collaboration. I think what, I, what what my understanding is. So Sam Mendez, the director, sent you the script in June 2018 with the plan to shoot in April 2019. Is is that the case? Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, I mean it's it's unusual to be. Um, uh, brought in kind of you know ten months uh, in advance of shooting, but I think it was 
you know, down to Sam's planning for the movie was meticulous and it was he it was ambitious and it was close to his heart and he you know he wanted to um get his team involved and he wanted to you know through every step of the the thing every shot was it was the planning you know it was down to the the nth degree of everything so i think that was um why it uh, it came to me so early i mean of course i wasn't working uh, full time from then but it, it enabled me to secure uh, the crew that I wanted and to start to um, contact the other uh, creative departments and, and start that dialogue with uh, the very important things with costume, with um, the camera department, with the locations department. Um, I was able to go and see all the locations uh, four months ahead of shooting before any construction had begun to so we could see if there was any issues for sound, uh, things that we needed to deal with to uh, improve the sound or um, acoustics or things to watch out for. So um, that, uh, I mean, I like to be involved with a film as early as possible because it's the, that preparation uh, is, is key, really. Because I think on the day when the camera's rolling and you're shooting, you just have to kind of uh, you know roll with it and, and improvise but uh, if I feel if I've prepared as much as I can then uh, I can't blame anyone else for when it all goes wrong one of the things I read was that uh, Sam your director also kind of the conversation with Roger Deakins the DP was like this concept of the one take approach which when you found out about that I think your feedback what I read was that you approach it like a documentary style kind of following kind of in those blind spots behind the camera. But I think when you kind of recognize in, in the pre-production stages that it wasn't going to be that simple, that there were other aspects to how your job was going to dramatically change because of how they were shooting it. So what was, how did you want to approach this differently and what kind of made sense technically just from a, a standpoint of getting the coverage that you needed and also being conscious of, of everything else going on, on on the day of the shoot? The essential thing for the the continuous shot vision, I thought, would be the sound would help that by being connected, staying connected to our lead characters throughout their journey. You know, their dialogue, their movements and their breath had to hold a connection with the audience. So um, I thought, yeah, how am I going to stay on the shoulder of the camera all the time when he's he's on the move he's he's steady cam it's in motion it was the idea was that uh yeah that was a constant uh constantly moving thing so i thought of first of all just strapping on my recorder and running behind the camera and uh, as uh, i've i've done on um some of the collaborations with michael winterbottom who's a, a british director who's who's pretty out there he doesn't want anything to compromise his vision he just wants to shoot 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 um but um yeah i realized that wouldn't work um because uh partly i'd be adding another set of footsteps to the track um and there was a lot of squelchy mud and so on and uh we didn't want that and other times it just wouldn't be physically possible the camera would go back into a corner and pan around with the actors and follow them. And I might just get caught out. And the second thing, because it was all the shots, there was such a beautiful choreography to the shots. So the special effects department were doing their thing and the, the focus puller was remote and he was pulling focus and all these people had to hear the dialogue. They had to hear the mix that I was getting sent to them. So I had to, be able to transmit that to uh, Sam, where he was the director, the director of photography, the special effects uh, guys, and and uh, there was a lot of key people who had to be, um, uh, you know, right on hearing that dialogue clearly. So I had to sort of um, approach it a bit more like a an installation, to the site specific thing to, for each shot, where I would. 
um, have antenna networks and be able to cover the huge areas so that wherever they went, whether it was down into a deep trench or into a building or um, uh, across the battlefields, that we'd be able to to pick them up and cover them wherever they were. So that was a technical challenge, but um, I think everything, the, the, the visual idea of the film and Sam's vision of the film and the drama and the actors, their emotion, it all just kind of gelled together in a, in, in a, a congruent way, which was very satisfying. That's great. One of the pictures that I've seen many times from from the show is your two uh, boom ops, I guess Hugh Sherlock and Tom uh, Fennell, kind of really long booms coming up and over from the size of the trenches when you're doing these long runs in the trenches. How did you guys find this work? Did I mean, how, how did you even, you know, how wide did you cover from radio mics versus what you're booming? Well, we had radio mics all the time, but the booming, um, I think through an early conversation with uh, our supervising sound editor, Oliver Tarney, um, we decided that we would use stereo booms um, because the with the boom being with our characters traveling you know, through trenches past other soldiers across landscapes, um, we wanted to have that width because there would be things going on, um, you know, synchronous things that we wanted to capture. But also it's kind of unusual that you have shots in a movie that might be nine minutes long, because when you have a stereo boom and you have an edit every five seconds or less, you know, in an action film, that stereo is kind of useless because the perspective is shifting uh, so rapidly, but when you have a continuous uh, nine-minute shot, you know, through countryside or past uh, soldiers who are do, working, doing their thing, you can capture that width from the stereo boom. So uh, that was a, a, a great um, uh, thing that we benefited from in these these long take shots. That's incredible, and and some of the other things that just looking through um, kind of the complexities of what you're having to do. When you're talking about building these big networks for the signals to travel long distances, you, you were then also the opportunity. Can you talk, talk to me about the collaboration you did with um, a lot of like the set design and some of the other departments to basically set up these networks and kind of hide them within the fields. I saw some pictures of like some veg antennas in, in vegetation and different stuff like that. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we, we, um, uh, had to we set up antenna networks I and mean, we just wanted to get coverage of our actors wherever they went uh, it, it was to prepare the space so that we could step back and the actors could be free to to play out the scene and we would be able to pick them up wherever they went so um i spoke to the drapes department who were making the sandbags in the trenches among other things and they made us some bags from the same cloth, uh, which we used to hide antennas and uh, receivers and other equipment. And we had some, I got some artificial grass, which I, turf, which we smeared with mud and wrapped uh, equipment in that. So we had antennas hidden in mounds of earth or in trees or on munitions boxes or you name it. Uh, so we were, we were well covered. I think with the with the the wireless mics, um, it was great. The costume department were very helpful in. Um, uh, I knew we'd be reliant on wireless mics a lot, um, and uh, the costume department were very accommodating in that they would they remade some of the jackets for us, and we were able to experiment with the the wool and the leather and what was uh, would give us unwanted noise, fabric noise on the mics, and what wouldn't, and how the, the different breakdown treatments uh, would affect the sound because they would break down the cloth with oil and wax and mud. Um, so 
they were it was a great collaboration there and and our two lead actors they had two body worn mics on all the time and then they had another mic in their helmet so often they would have three microphones and i think one day uh Schofield our lead character even had four wireless microphones on uh, because I wanted to get the breath, but we also wanted to get the footsteps, wanted to get the movement of the body um, and all the equipment they were carrying. So it was, uh, I have to hand it to George Mackay for his uh, just being such a great collaborator. And as a result, he didn't have to replace any of his dialogue because he, he, he put up with us getting the mics where we wanted them. And in addition to the, well, apart from that, when he goes down the river, there's a scene where George uh, goes underwater and travels down the river. And then he was wearing two body-worn recorders um, because the wireless signals underwater are unreliable. So to make sure we could capture that whole journey, um, uh, he had the body-worn recorders on as well. So... Um, I think George Mackay d- deserves a, a special sound uh, tribute from the sound department. That's awesome. Um, and so I, one of the things, my understanding is that so much of this was shot using natural light. There wasn't a lot of opportunity. These long shots are not going to light. I mean, except for some of the nighttime stuff. But because there was so much of a waiting for the weather to kind of get in the right moment when I'm sure Roger or or Sam would say, all right, now it's go time. Can you describe kind of that, that start stop mentality of production of kind of you're at the mercy of weather? How did that influence kind of how production worked? And also, is it true that you guys kind of shot it in, in sequence? Is that true? Yes, we did. We shot it in sequence um, because it was essential that, each shot matched the previous shot, so it was it was nearly all in sequence, not not entirely, but um, yeah. So the editor would be choosing the take um, with Sam, um, and that would be the take we would be matching to the next day or the next time we were shooting. So that that was important. I mean, I think. Um, it's great for a boom operator when you 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 can't shoot in sunshine because uh, you you have less fewer shadow problems so we were more we could more often get the boom where we wanted it um so that was great but i think it the the weather thing it worked out well sometimes because it meant you could if the sun was out and you couldn't shoot then you could rehearse and that rehearsal, that refinement, you know, being able to refine your mix and your mic placement, and it was uh, it, it was really great for us because it meant that when you got that take, you know, take eighteen, whatever, when the the actors were in the right place in relation to the camera, the focus was on, and the sound mix was just there. It was just, you know, that was. That was the most satisfying thing. And also, how much time did you have to record on location vehicles or other aspects that you knew that your post team was was maybe asking for or thought of that um, were going to be helpful? Well, we had some fun recording because we had some uh, genuine hundred-year-old army trucks uh, with the the hundred-year-old engines, which actually worked and. Um, so we did some recording of that out in this kind of open moorland so we could get lovely um, tracks of them traveling very far away and traveling towards us. Um, but um, uh, we didn't have too much time to do so many wild tracks, but what we did was we were able to tip off the post team to Oliver Tarney and his team to let them know, you know, when we were coming towards the end of uh, our work on a location so they could come in the next day while everything was still all the dressing was still there all the the wooden boards and all the accessories in the trenches so they came in and recorded uh, on location foley and footsteps and squashing around in mud and so on Uh, so that was that was great for the different environments and uh, they were able to come down and um, there's a scene in the film where uh, 
there's a soldier singing a song before the troops go over into battle. And um, the singer was fantastic. He had a very pure, sort of clear voice. Was that done on set? And was that him actually? Was that a pre-record? That, uh, no, that was actually done on set. And, and every take he was just... Um, he just was his performance was perfect but um what uh, was done in post i mean I, I recorded some um impulse response uh sweep tones in the forest where he was to capture the acoustic of all the reflections off the trees and um uh oliver and, and michael the sound designer went into the woods with uh, some speakers and placed microphones at different distances so they played back the this the chosen recording from the from the the take that we used and they could uh, record it from different distances to capture that natural sound of it when it's drifting on the wind as you you first start to hear it one of the things that i really appreciated is the the tension that the silence brings especially in those in those first you know the first kind of acts of them leaving the trench going across kind of this no man land to see whether or not if the enemies are there and um, it's incredibly quiet but their breaths are are so present and something that I think really ground you in kind of just the the nervousness of of these these soldiers can you talk about how important it is you know the, the kind of the subtle and the kind of how much detail is in um, the breast, even when it's meant to be very uh, quiet and still? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, there's a scene when the um, our uh, guys step out of the safety of their own trench to go into no man's land. And um, at the camera at this point was rigged on a, a wire cam. And uh, these uh, they brought in the wire cam to test it and they they use these massive lifting cranes and have it the camera suspended on four wires uh like they use in maybe in football uh so but the the cranes uh, have generators and the the wires have uh computer controlled winches which are pulling it around and um I just told the guys that this wasn't going to work for us. This the noise was 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 no good, and they said to me, "Well, there's no dialogue in this sort of section of the film, so maybe it's okay." And uh, I had to explain to them that even though there was no dialogue, there was still breathing, and there were footsteps on mud and puddles and over many different surfaces, and that the breathing was as important as dialogue because it conveyed the the state of those terrified characters as, as they ventured into no man's land so like you say the breathing was subtle and full of detail it, it was conveying a lot about what they were going through our heroes as they you know inched forward into no man's land and they're diving into shell holes and they're stumbling past fallen comrades so that 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 breath conveys so much and it keeps us connected with their experience what they're going through but uh, it's also important to capture it there and because it's very difficult to recreate in a dubbing studio because the actor's then trying to consciously do something which was unconscious at the time so it's, it's never as convincing as the original performance so i got these them to they swapped out the generators for the quietest ones we could get and we hired in acoustic barrier sheeting to put in front of the winches and um yeah the results were a very gripping shot i think where you know your connection with the characters is completely held mm. something going back to what you were talking about earlier about pre-production of everyone um having a voice in the conversation and one of those was i think maybe your instinct to not have generators on set um to to be more battery operated uh, how did you find kind of like in those once everyone understood kind of the complexity of the the production and of what Sam was kind of tasking everyone with, how, how do you think that had a ripple effect kind of, you know, changing or making everyone more conscious of sound? Do you think it shifted people's 
kind of ears to being more hyper aware than usual? I, I hope so. I mean, I, it's, uh, we filmed in a, a place called Salisbury Plain, which is um, it's an, an area of countryside. It's, it's, it's enormous and it's owned by the Ministry of Defense. So nobody lives there. So it's the sound is fantastic. So there's very little traffic. And um, because it's owned by the military, we were able to put in place a no-fly zone. So there was no aircraft noise, um, which was, a, uh, I mean, a dream come true. I think you couldn't really make that up. But I think being in that place, um, I think people did in the crew, you know, get more used to the quiet, like it, as quiet as it must have been 100 years ago pre uh, too much industrialization. Um, so it was great. But Sam, as a director, he's sensitive to sound and he's very demanding on everyone in all departments. So I think there was a, a tremendous respect from the crew of what our actors were doing and the the challenges that everyone involved in that, the choreography of each shot was, was in because it... Um, You'd, you spend a whole day doing one shot, and if 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 somebody makes a noise, it um, you know it just would be unforgivable. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. Um, what about the role of uh, just looking at kind of the complexities, the technical aspects of running this kind of fiber network long distances? We're trying to understand because many times maybe Video Village or maybe where you were set up was not anywhere near. Like, can you give a scope of the the lengths of the runs, and then also how you were able also, because you were also feeding, my understanding is you were feeding sound to actors that were positioned at different points so they could have some sense of kind of location where people were. Is it, how would you describe that? <clears throat> well, I think the we would have, there were some shots where the actors could be uh, traveling like half a mile and walking and talking the whole time. So those were the distances that I haven't, uh, had to cover before, so that was a you know a really interesting challenge, and um, we developed techniques and used equipment that I hadn't used before, so um, that was great. And then when we um, did travelling shots in the in the back of the army truck, um, we were able to f- sort of flip the antenna network around so that I would be travelling in the truck with the actors to make sure I was getting, uh, recording their sound, but, um, use the antenna network to send the, that mix back to everyone else who, who had to hear them. But, um, yeah, I mean the, the trench, the biggest trench they dug was, um, 600 yards long. So the, the, the distances were quite considerable. What were some of the other challenging scenes? Was there was there anything that challenging even about that nighttime with the sh- you know the shadows and the bombing and the exp- I mean how how is it to do coverage especially when there's explosions and bombs being dropped? Like how do you deal with dynamics? There's some great there's microphones that I prefer to use when there's going to be very loud stuff happening, and the wireless equipment we had was was uh, was very good, and um, we generally have some microphones uh hardwired on on cables to because you know that they've got the the dynamic range to capture the 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 loud bangs and explosions without uh, any distortion um and having really good preamps on the the recorders and the the mixing board is is important for that but i think um a lot of the challenges some of the stuff was very nitty-gritty nuts and bolts you know when there was um the difference between getting the sound capturing the original sound and not getting it could be down to too much squelching footsteps in the in the foot of a trench so um we got into this uh, situation where i would be sitting mixing a scene you know six pages long one minute and then when they cut the scene running down into the trench lifting up the wooden duckboards that they're walking on shoveling sand and wood chips underneath to absorb the water putting the boards down and then running back 
to my to mix the next take because the special effects and the camera would love to have the wanted to have the the mud to be wet and the water running down into the foot of the trench. So it was a kind of a race against time to get it before they were just squelching their way through the through the drama. So it's it's these a lot of these very just nuts and bolts I'd I'd say um details. I think we spent as much time getting rid of unwanted sounds as we did in trying to capture the sounds that we did want. That's awesome. Well, obviously, you're not the only one that uh, you, you have an incredible team. It sounds like it went from six to about eight people on some of the bigger days. Maybe if you'd um, love for you to just have an opportunity to acknowledge some of those folks that were uh, right there with you. Yes. Well, I, I had a great team for this. There was um, the uh, boom operators, Hugh Sherlock and Tom Fennell. Um, Hugh is, um, I think, for because I immediately saw that some of this boom operating was going to involve running backwards along mounds of wet mud for, you know, several minutes at a time. Um, uh, I got a former gymnast to, to, uh, to do that role. Um, and uh, Tom Fennell's a long-term collaborator who started working with me on Warhorse. Um, the Steven Spielberg film, and he's he was our expert in radio mic concealment and costume negotiations. And then there was David Giles, um, who's a he's a sound mixer in his own right, but he's worked as an assistant to me for years. So he um, coped well with the challenge of of uh, sending and receiving audio anywhere. Uh, I had Tom Wilkin, who was a second assistant sound, who was uh, made sure all the key crew could hear what they had to hear. And Michael Fearon was our trainee, who was a uh, a great uh, flexible support assistant. And then on the big days, we had uh, Rob Piller, who's a, a fiber optic specialist and um, very good at repairing uh, in the field. And uh, we had a new trainee called Thomas Dornan, um, who was uh, who worked out very well. It was it was his first big movie, but he was very enthusiastic and didn't mind getting wet and muddy. I can't imagine having your first job be in uh, 1917. It's a very special <laughs> opportunity. Um, just looking back on you know the past year or two that you've had, you've been involved with incredible productions from the Two Popes, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, Solo, um, many Star Wars. Actually, I'm looking. I'm looking back here. It's it's The Last Jedi, Force Awakens. You've had this incredible run of projects that I feel like have um, I'm sure challenged you and helped you grow as. Recordist, what what was your specific takeaway from this production? What 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 have you learned? What 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 was challenging, or what what was new? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've been. I, I have to pinch myself. I've been involved in uh, so many incredible productions r- recently uh, with great teams. Um, so I feel very fortunate. Um, Nineteen Seventeen was different to all those because it's. I mean, it's a unique project it was a unique challenge and um very satisfying very moving i i went to see it for the third time uh, at the weekend in the imax and I, I still cried um it's just uh i think it, it, it because i've worked before with the director director of photography production designer costume designer and special effects supervisor and the location manager and it was such a you know, a great relationship of trust um, between all the different departments and um, everybody really threw themselves into it. And in the spirit of collaboration, yeah, there wasn't um, any um, uh, problems on set with people throwing their weight around. It was just everybody really entered into the spirit of it. And um, that was, I think... You know, Sam was a, a great figurehead for that, and our producers were fantastic as well. That's incredible. Well, congratulations again on this nomination for Sound Mix, along with your collaborator, Mark Taylor. Obviously, the editorial team, Oliver Tarney and, and Rachel Tate, were also recognized for and the sound editing nomination. I imagine it's going to be 
an incredible evening, night for all of you. Just um, congratulations again. I'm, I'm so excited. It was an incredible film to experience in theaters, and I hope more people can obviously have that experience because the, the theater experience is, there's nothing quite like it, just being swept along in that that kind of first-person perspective. I'm, yeah, no, well, thank you. Thank you for your your interest. It's been uh, been great to, to talk about it and go over some of the, the experiences. Cool. Well, Stuart, congratulations again. Thank you so much. And um, good luck on uh, on Oscar night. Well, thank you. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Thank you to Dolby. Mm-hmm.